Welcome to Mix Understood, where we explore identity, the meaning of the word race, and talk about the multicultural and multiracial experience with stories from our own lives. I'm Hana Lisa Kakibara, and I'm Amy Megara Taub. And in today's episode, we are diving into our identity forming early teen years through this lens of being mixed. Each of us have our own incredibly unique experience and it depends on who we were raised by, where we were raised, how we look. Um, there's so many factors and, and in fact, you know, you and your sibling can have a completely different experience. The fact that you have these two cultures and you can flip and flop, that's going to become your superpower, as cliched as that sounds, it really is. removed your upper lip like this and I was again I was like oh ground just swallowing me up in the landscape of Israel I was probably the least hairy girl in my school well, lucky Before we dive into this episode, it's important for us to say that we are here to offer up stories, ideas and various theories for you to consider and decide for yourself in light of your own knowledge and experience. Exactly. We hope to explore, learn and grow together with you. We are not professing to have any of the answers. Our aim is to start conversations around these topics. So we were doing a little bit of research... And, and research on multiracial children and adolescents is relatively scarce. It's kind of hard to find information. It is, there. especially current information too. Yes. What I did find is a big Wikipedia page about theorists and researchers trying to pin down what it is that a multiracial or biracial person goes through in their lifetimes, the stages. Mm -hmm, and there mm -hmm. are multiple theories on this. Yeah, I see here there is a model of biracial identity development by Kerwin and Ponterados that came out in 1995, and it addresses awareness and racial identity through developmental stages based on age. So there's like the preschool years, zero to five years old. Uh, that's when one begins to observe differences and similarities in how they look. And then levels of eagerness to discuss issues in regard to race amongst parents are apparent. The next one is entry to school. So as involvements increase with certain groups, they are influenced with the idea of, of identifying with a monoracial label. They meaning the multiracial children. And then they go into pre-adolescence, becoming more cognizant of how social groups are represented by certain characteristics, such as skin tone, religion, and ethnicity. And their sensitivity to race differs depending on certain environmental factors, such as being immersed in a monocultural or diverse context. And then we go to adolescence. Feelings of pressure heighten to identify with the racial group that is associated with the parent of colour. And then we've got the college or young adulthood years. Continues to engage in a monoracial group and subtly realises situations involved race-related remarks. And then finally, adulthood. Ongoing discovery on culture and race, determining self-perceptions of different identities and has stronger resilience for diversified cultural contexts. I feel like I personally can relate to some of this, but same, not all of it. Same, same. And I just want to reiterate that there are a lot of different theories. This is literally just one of them. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. And there's also some talk underneath that of basically saying that it's impossible to pin down a theory of every multiracial person's experience that they have in their lifetime. Exactly. Because we're all just so different. Every experience is so varied. Yeah, every, each of us have our own incredibly unique experience. And it depends on who we were raised by, where we were raised, how we look. Mm -hmm. um, there's so many factors. And, and in fact, you know, you and your sibling can have a completely different experience. Oh yeah. Um, and go through some of these stages or all of these stages in, or in different orders. Mm -hmm. 
So I think that's one of the reasons it's hard to study this. This is from the medical news today and is actually quite current. It's from 2023. The racial groups we know today are not biological. They were created or socially constructed and they are always changing. Just take a look at how the US census categories have shifted across the decades. And we've talked about this Mm -hmm, in other episodes. mm And it also says multiracial children from the union of people of two or more different racial backgrounds do not fit neatly into people's understanding of race as consisting of mutually exclusive categories. The mere existence of multiracial people challenges the idea that racial groups are distinct, presenting a challenge to white supremacy, which is rooted in the belief in white racial purity. Yep. So it's going to be harder and harder to maintain this world of white racial supremacy because we're just becoming more and more mixed. We were always were mixed, all of mm-hmm. us, yeah. but we're becoming, it's becoming harder and harder to put people into one category. Yeah, and we're going into what equals a struggle yeah. for a lot of multiracial people because we are this and that mm-hmm. and that can throw up a lot of confusion for some people because a lot of people do want those neatly defined boundaries well, i mean less and less yeah but- well, well up until now to pr- it says here to protect the racial power structure in the u.s multiracial people have been erased throughout history. You know, one of the best known examples of this is the one drop rule, which was created to ensure that anyone with a single drop of black blood was considered black to justify enslavement and later segregation under Jim Crow laws. Yeah, so we we haven't necessarily had a landscape of multiracial identity to relate to. There isn't one. There never is going to be one. Again, because we're... Every mixed person is so unique in their mixedness. Mm -hmm. There isn't one landscape that we can all say, oh, I belong to that landscape. But the good thing is, just while we're here, and it's from the same article, society is changing rapidly and there are more multiracial identifying people today than ever before. There are more celebrities identifying as multiracial and playing multiracial rather than monoracial characters on TV. There are now more children's books, uh, multiracial youth stories, and social media is also helping multiracial youths across the globe to connect with and support one another. However, yeah, so I pulled up this article from the Anxiety and Depression Association of America, and there it is written... As you already said, the multiracial population is one of the fastest growing communities of color in the United States, but it also faces significant mental health challenges, including anxiety, depression, substance use disorders, and psychosis. While not a mental health diagnosis, many people of multicultural heritage also experience imposter syndrome or feelings of self-doubt and personal crisis in relation to how they identify themselves. These feelings may come from internal reflection, but they are often perpetuated by the negative reactions, attitudes, and perceptions of them by others. Discrimination, prejudice, exclusion, and microaggressions against multiracial populations, many of whom trace their heritage back to colonialism and slavery, have serious impacts on their mental health. Two or more races are most likely to report a mental health illness in a given year, And the percentage of people with mental illness identifying as multiracial is 25%. Multiracial youth are particularly susceptible to symptoms of depression and anxiety as they navigate school, interact with peers and begin to come to terms with their identity, puberty and future plans. One study showed that compared to white students, mixed race or ethnic students, have significantly higher rates of poor mental health conditions and significantly fewer protective factors. So what do you think about that? I I can believe it. I mean, teenage years are tough on everyone, whether you're mixed or not, mono-race or not. It's hard. It's tough. And it, it again, it, there's so many factors that come into it. I read this, I, I relate to it, and I can see how, yes, being of mixed background, it can be another layer to navigate as you're going through those teen years because you're forming your identity and there isn't really a guideline mm. to kind of follow. Um, but I will say that, as I already said, being a teenager, for the most part, sucks. Everyone is trying to form their identity. Everyone is dealing with whatever parents they have or history they have. And 
Yeah, um, totally. And from also from the research that we've been doing, it talks about the role of parents and the role of having a support system around you or maybe a counsellor or teachers to talk to at school. And I, I just feel like that's true for anything that a kid is going through. Those open channels mm-hmm. and communication of whatever's going on in your mind is essential. Yeah, um, there's actually a list here um, on aacap.org of emotional needs of multiracial children. It says here, recent research has shown that multiracial children do not differ from other children in self-esteem, comfort with themselves, or number of psychiatric problems. Also, they tend to be high achievers with a strong sense of self and tolerance of diversity. I totally relate to that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Then it says here, children in a multiracial family may have different racial identities from one another. Yeah, we were saying that earlier. Mm -hmm. Their racial identity is influenced by their individual physical features family attachments and support, and experiences with racial groups. 100%. Yeah, same. To cope with society biases, mixed-race children may develop a public identity with the minority race while maintaining a private interracial identity with family and friends. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. I can see that, but... Uh, me too, but that wasn't true yeah, for me. I had multiple identities, but it wasn't necessarily the minority race. Um, Research has shown that children with a true multiracial or multicultural identity generally grow up to be happier than multiracial children who grow up with a single race identity. That's interesting. I guess because you're denying a part of yourself. Yeah. Yeah, maybe, you know, there's more culture, more... Yeah. Which I'm... and, And, you know, it shifts and it ebbs and flows over life. I feel like I'm only really... In a way, I, I, I did push away my Japanese side for many years, and mm-hmm. I'm starting to reclaim it. And um, Yeah, that's we, what these theorists say, that it's an ever-expanding yeah, and changing thing, yeah. and it carries on until for the rest of your life. Exactly. And then living in the States for 20 years, that's a, that's a whole other culture and identity. Yeah. Um, and then the last part here says, multiracial children in divorced families may have greater difficulties accepting and valuing the cultures of both parents. Yeah. That- Again, when did the parents divorce? Mm-hmm. What is your relationship to them? How did it end? Where are the parents living? And did culture come into why they divorced? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, probably. Yeah. <laughs> I would say very likely, but again, yeah. each each situation is unique. Um, yeah, there's a lot there and it's so interesting and we'll obviously put these links on the show notes if mm-hmm. anyone wants to do any further reading. I think it's also important to talk about this as well. So from the same article, the role of the parents. Some interracial families face discrimination in their communities. Some children from multiracial families report teasing, whispers and stares with their family. Children may also face pressure from society, peers or their families to identify with only one race. Parent, yeah, I was just going to say, you know. I mean, it's definitely like growing up when we would walk into a restaurant as a family Mm. or down the street, like all the five, we're five kids. People look at us. Oh, 100%. And and also asking, so so if you had to pick, which one would you pick? I didn't get that. It's probably, it would probably be the Indian side. That's what you got. Yeah. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. It's just that that pressure that it talks about to, Mm. to pick. And then it goes on to say, parents can help their children cope with these pressures by establishing open communication in the family about race and cultures and by allowing curiosity about differences in skin color, hair texture and facial features among family members. Parents can also help their children in the following ways. Assist children with developing coping skills to handle questions and or biases about their background. Help children deal with racism without feeling personally assaulted. Oh my God, that's great, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Encourage and support a multicultural life for the whole family, including becoming familiar with language, traditions and customs of all family members. If possible, live in a diverse community where the sense of being different or unacceptable is minimized. I would love to do that. Hope to do that. Understand that children may have feelings of guilt or disloyalty to a parent if they choose to adopt the racial identity and or culture of one parent. Recognise that children may identify with different parts of their heritage at different stages of development or in varied settings in order to fit in. I love that because it's saying you don't have to 
interfere too much and trust that they will find it in their own time. Absolutely. And also not take things personally and just let them grow and Mm -hmm, be. mm -hmm. Uh, And then the last one, I also love this, locate books, textbooks and movies that portray multiracial individuals as positive role models, as well as books about the lives of multicultural families. Yeah, I I feel like that was maybe one of the few things that we didn't have growing up. Oh, we didn't have. And whisper, Amy and I were talking. (laughs) (laughs) This is a big reveal. This is a big reveal. Should we say it? Yeah. Okay, because then we have to do it. We were were talking about maybe writing our own children's book together, which... um, both of us were meeting like, yes, 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 yes. And we've already been brainstorming. Yeah. Um, so stay tuned for that. It's going to take a minute because we're we're first trying to record like enough episodes to release this podcast. Yeah, which is happening. But it is, yeah, let's just shake on it right now. Okay, let's do it. It's happening. It's happening. It is happening. Okay. Done. I'm completely just... It's been my dream forever Me to write too. a children's Me too. Why book? have we never talked about this? I don't know. So what was it like for you? What was your school like and um, growing up in those teenage years? So actually, Israel is quite the cultural melting pot. Um, They call it a nation of immigrants. Um, There's basically people that have come from all over the world. And, you know, I went to to a Jewish-Israeli school, ranged from secular Jewish people, Jewish people to more religious kids. But... Almost everyone in my school growing up had immigrant parents. They were maybe second or third generation in Israel or first generation. Um, So I had like my best friend was half Kurdish, half Moroccan. I had a friend that was like her parents were French. I had a friend that her dad was American. Her mom was maybe Polish, I think. And another friend that was um, uh, that came actually from Mexico for one year and we we became best friends so it was and actually I was I was also quite lucky because I had one Asian friend she she was half half Chinese half Vietnamese and they were Christian she was my one Christian Mm -hmm. Asian friend which now looking back I'm thinking oh man I was so lucky that was so rare that that happened and also we became besties so growing up in school it it was we didn't have any Palestinian Arabs in the school that, that was probably one of the missing parts, but mm-hmm. there were other like Palestinian Arabs in the neighborhood, um, surrounding areas of the neighborhood. And then we lived in an, right next to a university, like a big university. So there were a lot of students from all over the world oh, cool. that were yeah. kind of in and out of the, of the neighborhood, as well as professors and academics and, you know, scholars and stuff like that. So, so it was quite it was multicultural. Very, very colorful. Yeah. I would say that the one thing, the one front where I felt that I didn't belong was the, was the Jewish front, because all these people, that, you know, they were from the the corners of the different corners of the earth, but the one thing they had in common was that they were Jewish, mm-hmm. and that I didn't have. Yeah. Um, so that's often where I felt like a little bit insecure, or wanted to be. I wanted to be like them, but I also didn't want to convert. As a teenager, did that come up, your beliefs and your religion? It did. I, I basically took on Judaism as a cultural thing. So I, I often say to people, I'm culturally Jewish. I actually celebrate their holidays. <laughs> well, so do I now. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and I get nostalgic about them too. Like when even though I live in, in LA now, you know, Passover comes around the corner and like, I want to do Passover. And, mm-hmm. and if I, it's, it reminds me of home. Yeah. Growing up, uh, there was this holiday called Yom Kippur where you atone for your sins mm-hmm. and you do that by fasting for a day. And you you also say sorry to, to everyone and ask them for forgiveness if you've hurt them. And I remember feeling like, well, I should, I want to fast because I want to be able to relate to my friends and to bond with them over that and say like, oh my gosh, I'm so hungry and, and kind of go, go through the suffering with them. And I would say sorry to people, you know, I didn't want to isolate myself by going, oh, I don't need to do that. Yeah. But then I also knew if I was 
hungry, I could just go to the kitchen and eat a snack. Like I could break the rules. Yeah, I could because te- I technicality here. Did you actually do that? Of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Did you admit it? Um, maybe. Yeah. I think maybe I would have. I said like, oh, I just had one snack. You know, but just I one. I did my best, you know. I don't think I've ever fully fasted on Yom Kippur. Maybe uh-huh. once. Okay. And it was very hard. Yeah, but the intention was there. Yeah. What other types of things did you do to um, blend in as a teenager? I find the subject so interesting. <laughs> oh, no. Because <laughs> we all did things. Well, the main, the main ways I wanted to be a part of and participate were, I think what every teenager faces is like, you want to have the right clothes, the right things, the cool bag, the, the, the right pens and notebooks. And, and you want to be able to, when people are saying they're going, going to the movies, you want to be able to go to the movies or go to that party. You want to have the friends, you know, those were the things it was less cultural things. It was more those basic stuff that I, mm-hmm. that I wanted to be a part of. I did feel though that my parents were more strict than the average Israeli parent. Okay. They're quite laid back there. And tr- it seemed to me like, and again, this could be how teenagers all over the world feel. They might mm-hmm. feel like my parents are the only strict parents in the neighborhood. And it could be because all their other friends are lying about the permission that their parents are giving them. But it did feel like my parents were a little, they were more, they came from cultures where like kids don't have as much freedom as I saw my other Israeli friends get. Mm -hmm. Like they would go to bed later than me, go out later than me, um, dress more freely than me. Um, So I would... I, I would spend the night at my best friend's. I would say I'm spending the night at her house, and then we would get dressed up and, and sneak out of the house and, oh gosh, I did and, that too. and go out and stuff. And my mom caught me almost every time. She caught you? <laughs> so How? Many, so many times. Because she used to say to me, Hannah, don't you know you can't lie? And I would say, why? And she would say, because it's written on your forehead. <laughs> <laughs> Is that when you got back the next day? Um, no, I would, I, yeah, I would get the, well, she would call my friend's house. Oh, back then it was just landlines. Yeah. yeah. She would call the landline and I would come out, come back to my friend's house after like an exciting night on the town. Mm-hmm. And there would be this post-it by the telephone. Your mom called. <laughs> that would literally send a dagger right through me. Oh my I'd be gosh. Like, I, feel, I feel scared just remembering it. Yeah, it was terrifying. And she had this other technique. <laughs> she had another technique. <laughs> she would, because we would take the bus downtown. You know, we were like 15. We had to take the bus. Mm. And we would take, and she would walk the dog and <laughs> make sure. When, so she once caught us at the bus stop because she was walking the dog. And yeah, oh, sometimes no. then I got smarter. Then I was like, let's wait for the phone call. Yeah. And then go out. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I but she got too. she she then improved on that front too. She started calling later and Damn later. It. I, and you know, I wonder because what about my friend's dad? He didn't. They didn't seem to care that she was calling at like midnight or one a.m. I was very <laughs> rude to do. But yeah. Oh my anyway, gosh. What about you? No, no. My mom didn't go as far as calling. I felt like, sorry, mom, I know that you're probably listening to this, but I felt like she believed me that I was going around to my friend's house just to stay the night. But little did she know that I was going out clubbing. Oh, Not wow. at the age of 15, but more like 16, 17. Mm-hmm. And then when I went out and I didn't stay at a friend's house, my mum would say, well, I'm coming to pick you up at 11. And I'd be oh, like, Mom, the night brutal. just starts at 11. Yes, that's God. what I was saying too. Yeah, because we'd have pre-drinks wherever at some, some bar. Mm-hmm. And then everyone would go to this place called Bar Central, which was like the club. Okay. And we'd get there at, say, 10.30 and I'd have half an hour of fun. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then that was it. Oh, it's terrible. And I think my mum thought that she was being lenient because back in her day, she told me that her and her sisters would go to a party. They would literally help set up and then they'd have to go home. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what happened. Oh my 
good. Yeah, she was she was very strict, and she also taught at the. I mean, she she was fair, and <laughs> she was a great mum, but mm. she was strict, stricter than stricter than my friends' parents, mm. and she taught at the school that I went to. So her eyes were always on me. Oh, wow. I feel stressed again. Yeah. Once she split up, my best friend and I, we were sitting next to each other in biology at the age of 15 or 16, and I got a really bad grade. I got a U in my biology test. U? A U. What? Ungraded. (laughs) And so... (laughs) And because she was friends with the teacher, she said, I'd like you to split her and Chloe up because they influence each other and don't get any work done. Wait, did Chloe that I met? At Chloe the that you met, no yeah. No way! <laughs> we laugh at it to this day. I, I remember, so I changed clothes. This is also such a common thing, but I changed into this like suede crop top after leaving the house. And again, I was 15, 16. I could totally understand why my parents didn't want me roaming the city mm. like that, dressed like that. And then I came home and I forgot like I forgot my other shirt in my friend's bag or something. And I was like, oh no. Mm. And I came home and I could hear that the TV was on, which meant my mom was watching. She always watches the news late at night. And I was so like, just mine. dang it. So I was like, this is what I'm going to do. I'm just going to like casually walk to the bedroom. <laughs> casually hope, walk? Yeah. I would have run. No, no, no. Because then it would grab her attention. Okay. I was like, I'm just going to say hi and just walk. Okay. Confidently. To the, yeah. Confidently to the bedroom and hope she didn't even look at me. And <laughs> that's what I did. I just walked. Everything was fine. Not a word was said. I go to the bedroom and I'm just like, yes. And then I hear, Hannah, come back here. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I think I wasn't grounded or whatever. Aww. I can't remember what happened to me. But uh, my dad was also, I remember he was like, why you wear this shirt? You show your belly button. Why? <laughs> you know? And I said to him, because I would wear them to school too. And mm. I said to him, uh, Abba, which is father in, in Hebrew, I would say, Abba, I'm a teenager right now. Let me live. I'm not going to be dressed like this when I'm 30. Because back then, 30 was like really so old, so old really far away. Really Ancient. Old. Mm. And he was like, oh, you won't? And I was like, no, this is just now my young years. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm look at my body like I should celebrate, you know. And he was like, ah, and he kind of accepted that. And Aww. but, you know, look at me now. I'm still I just wore a crop top. The other day. <laughs> I, seriously, I love a crop top. <laughs> I too. wore them all the time when I was pregnant. I was like, I refuse to just hide away. Yeah. And I'm just going to express myself. <laughs> oh, God, I remember doing really embarrassing things fashion-wise to fit in. This isn't this isn't about being multiracial, this thing. But mm-hmm. I remember wearing a thong and then having no, really no, low no, jeans no. and my thong would be sticking out. I know. No, so... <laughs> Really? I did a lot of stupid things that like that. That is really bad. Really, oh really bad. Gosh. But when it comes to... <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we'll just I'm talking about getting in trouble for wearing a crop top. And you're wearing thongs? I know. Sticking out of yeah. your look. Wow. Yeah. So let's talk about the whole thing about being... That's it. We're changing the topic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I have no more to say about that. I still feel embarrassed right here. So what kind of school did you go to? I went to a private school, not because my family were absolutely loaded, but because my mum taught there and one of her children got to go there for free. And that was me. I was very, very fortunate, very lucky to have that education. Mm. And it was in in a place called Milton Keynes in England that was very predominantly white at the time. There were three Indian people in my school that I can think of. And bearing in mind... My entire school, from three years old to 18, there were probably about 500 or 600 people in the entire school. So everybody knew each other. And I went there from three to 18. And being multiracial, it was never like a thing, really. I was just me. Mm -hmm. And it never really came up. Um, But looking back now, I'm like, oh, that is quite weird that it wasn't very multicultural. Mm-hmm. There weren't many Indian people mm-hmm. or black people or mm-hmm. we had some Japanese people, but I, I always felt quite able and confident 
But I remember one specific time that I did face something. We were playing a netball match and I absolutely loved netball and I was just like doing my thing, playing goal attack. And then a girl from the other school, she suddenly, I don't know why she said this, but she called me a packy. Mm. And I was livid. Just that word just completely triggered something in me. And I just got really furious. And I, I can't remember what I did. I didn't try to like punch her or I didn't do anything like that. I just visibly got very angry. And I remember my PE teacher was not compassionate towards me. She just said to me, just, and she blew the whistle, like everyone just stop. And she just said, just calm down. What are you getting so angry about? Just calm down, just ignore her. And okay, fair enough, ignore someone. But it was just completely lack of any kind of understanding. Mm -hmm. I mean, my PE teacher was great, but she was a white lady, had no understanding of what it was that I was feeling mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and I just remember feeling completely frustrated and attacked yeah did you face anything like that there there was a phase that I was I kind of had an enemy for <laughs> I love it an enemy <laughs> and we were going at each other and we were like writing <clears throat> curses and stuff cursing each other out um with a sharpie on the at the bus stop yep and also we would send notes in the class. We would pass evil notes yeah. back and forth to one another. Like, I can't remember what we were fighting over, but, um, <laughs> but she knew that if she really wanted to hit me under the belt, she would call me like you, you know, something Christian or like you Japanese, you know, and then attached to that, like mm. a, something awful. And that hurt. You know, mm. that really hurt. Um, but that's, those are the easy, those are like the easy ones. But I remember when she wrote it on the bus stop, I felt a lot of shame. I didn't want other people yeah. to see it. And I think till this day when I walk, because that bus stop isn't far from where we live, I kind of feel a little bit like, mm. Yeah. That nasty. was the bus stop. We always went home from school. Did you talk to anyone about that? Did you have? No. No, that was the other thing is that I think for me... I decided I'm going to be as Israeli as I can, as much as I can, and I'm going to be more white as well. Often when I would look in the mirror, I would forget that I had a Japanese side to me. I would be like, oh, yeah, and I'm also Asian. Mm -hmm. It was just, I, I, I just wanted so desperately to, to be like my friends. And they, my friends would also forget, they would forget that I... Yeah. come from a you know with a different background it was only when we were in public and then someone would ask me again like oh you speak hebrew oh that and then they, they would also be like oh yeah we we forgot because mm -hmm. we just see you as hana we don't yeah they they didn't see me uh you know through labels oh totally they saw me through who i was i had the same conversation with my friend yesterday actually i told her we were doing this podcast and she's known me since i was 18 she was like, wow, that's fantastic that you're doing it. And she was like, but it's it's funny. I've never, ever thought any any of those labels about you. You've always just been you. Mm. And, it, you know, it was so nice to hear that. And, of course, I do know that about my friends. I guess it points to um, what we were talking earlier about your different um, sides that you have. Maybe yeah. one for your private people <clears throat> and one for the world or multiple yeah, ones. Yeah, there were um There were these two, I think they were Korean. They were new immigrants in Israel. They were Korean. They spoke like not a word in Hebrew and maybe three words in English. And they were added to my elementary school. I think we were in sixth grade. And they didn't stand a chance. And I just treated them as if I'm on the Israeli side and they're over there and I'm not, we are not connected. Oh, okay. Um, which we also weren't. I mean, yeah. they're from Korea. I have nothing to do... <clears throat> But I think I sort of wanted to not have anybody put me in the same category mm -hmm. as them because we all looked Asian. So I made sure that I, I was like, I don't know exactly how I did it, but I, it's not like I w went over and tried to help them out, mm -hmm. you know, which I feel bad about. I remember there was, um, there was also a wave of Russian immigrants that came, um, like former Soviet Union and... There was a girl that she was fully Russian and I was having a hard time. And I, I stuck with like the, the cool girls of the class 
and, you know, we teased her and I, till this day, I feel guilty about Mm. that, you know, but it was like sink or swim kind of thing. And I was like, I'm not going to associate myself with her. So I, I, I made definitely made moral compromises to, to stay with the cool kids. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting throughout, um, then in like junior high, my best friend moved to another high school and like socially did a lot of damage to me because I didn't have like my go-to best friend Mm -hmm. anymore. And I, and I quite struggled. I felt like I didn't have my go-to person and that buddy. Yeah. Yeah. That buddy, that safety net. And, and I struggled socially in junior high and high school particularly. And one of my friends from back then, we're, we're still friends till this day, I told her that and she was like, what, really? I would have never known. You, I thought you were popular, mm. like that you were totally fine. So that was interesting to me. I was like, no, 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 no. I was really hurting. Like mm. I didn't even, you know, when the school trip came up, you know, we would go on this big school trip for like five days in the desert or something. And I didn't go because I didn't have that person to ask to share the tent with me. Oh my gosh. Yeah. 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 And, and, and I just kind of made an excuse. I also just, I was, I just felt like it'll be hard for me in that social setting. Like I just, I don't know. Yeah. I do relate to this. Although I said that it was all fine at school and I was just me. I think I did, I did struggle, especially when my parents divorced and I'm sure through being mixed race as well and and going through certain things one of which I've just thought of I'm going to go into that in a minute but just finishing off from about the buddy thing I used to write a diary every day me too oh really and I I still love writing a diary and I remember writing I just really wish I had a buddy at school and I Mm. said that word I wish I had someone like that and then in year 10 (laughs) Chloe arrived Mm. and we were just thick as thieves both of us I felt so confident and so like I could just be myself never was race even discussed apart from the first conversation I had with her (laughs) this is so weird why did I say this I don't know but I guess it was on the forefront of my mind the first conversation we ever had I said you're probably wondering if I'm Spanish I'm not. I'm half Indian and half English. <laughs> and she tells me, she reminds me all the time that that's what I said. It's just so strange. <laughs> and never was it discussed ever again. Yeah, but it's, that's the thing is we're so used to thinking that people have this expectation of us of how we need to be. Mm. And we try to fulfill that because we want to be liked. And we want to fit in. And we forget that sometimes people genuinely don't care no they (laughs) They just don't they're not they're not even thinking that yeah Yeah. maybe it was also something to do with me wanting to feel special special or that I have something to talk about and I don't know Uh, adolescent psychology is very complicated you know but not just adolescent I feel like even until this day some I still I wear you know my my backstory you know with pride and yeah and it's like it's not about that it's not about making that first impression it's about connecting with people that was what I've learned over the years Mm -hmm. and obviously it's interesting to hear and get to know someone better and and try to understand where they came from but that's not the most important thing no not not at all at the time when I was a teenager my siblings and I it was like to each his own go fend for yourself kind of thing we weren't really friends (laughs) But now, looking back, I'm so grateful for my siblings because they went through a, a similar, you know, thing. We all went to the same school. We were all, like, pretty much the, the few Asians in the school. Everybody mm-hmm. knew who we were. <laughs> Five kids, we were all in there. Yeah. And again, we each had our own experience. But till this day, it's like this... Uh, a bonding thing that we have Mm -hmm. that I'm grateful for you know it would have been different had I been an only child see my brother and I didn't really discuss it we we ended up going to different schools although he went to the same school for for his early years but even though we haven't discussed it we have a mutual understanding I know that he went through stuff too Yeah, yeah yeah and when I talked to him about this podcast or about the script um, that I'm writing. I, I, he he gets it. 
What were some of like the insecurities? Oh, here we go. (laughs) (laughs) What? (laughs) Okay. I spent a lot of my teenage years, ever since the hair appeared on my legs and on my upper lip and my sideburns, quite frankly, worrying about those things and Mm. wishing that I didn't have pale skin and dark hair. It was Mm. the absolute bane of my life. And although I'm laughing about it now, Mm. it really took so much energy from me. Yeah. Wondering how I was going to get rid of it. Hoping, praying that nobody commented on it at school. One boy did. Thank you. Yeah. One lunchtime. What did he say? I was minding my own business. Oh. And he just came up to me and he was talking. And and then suddenly he went, you've got a moustache. Like that. I know it was again a stab in my gut and I just thought well just help me disappear right now it was just it was it was awful and and I I do wish that I had the guts to say to my mom like I need to do something about this because now I I see I see like my cousin's daughter going through the same thing and she will say to her mom I need to get my armpits waxed or I need to get my upper lip threaded and she she is at an age where her mum will, will do that for her. Not saying that my mum didn't want to do it, but I felt embarrassed to say anything. I felt embarrassed to even acknowledge that this was going on inside me. A hundred percent. That's such a thing that I feel a lot of teenagers go through is like things start changing and you're like, you're aware of it and you're just hoping that it's not too obvious and that it'll mm-hmm. go away and that it'll get better somehow. And I mean, I, in the landscape of Israel, I was probably the least hairy girl in my school. Well, lucky you. <laughs> no. um, but, and people would comment on it. They were like, oh, you don't have any hair. You don't have any hair. I remember actually when I was young, I was maybe seven years old and my best friend at the time, she was already, she had quite hairy legs already. That was me. Sorry. And so she said, let's shave our legs. But I didn't have hair to shave. But I thought, I want to be... I want to do what she's doing, you yeah. know? So I was like, yeah, let's shave them. And I, why did I do that? Because as soon as I shaved my non-hairy legs, that's when the hair came. And I oh thought, oh, gosh. God, oh what my am gosh. I doing? What a lesson to learn. And check this out. I even shaved my armpits. Again, no hair. And I didn't, you know, you now I know, <laughs> now I know right, <laughs> that you got to shave the opposite way, direction of what the hair is growing, right? Yeah. That's what you do. But back then young me didn't know I shaved in the wrong direction so then some of the hairs in my left armpit started growing in the wrong direction and I thought oh god I've ruined my body I've ruined my body and I was so ashamed of it it was like my little secret actually I think this is the first time I'm revealing this how does it feel young me is horrified oh my god Um, but where did you get a razor from because I searched my mum's cupboards trying to find something. And do you know what I did? No, I'm scared. I used a pumice stone, you know, one of those stones that you use to take off the hard skin off your feet. I used one of those to rub my legs quite hard to try and get the hair off. I think it did work in some patches. Like maybe (laughs) I had a few bald patches, but it wasn't enough to do the whole leg and to really make a difference. It was like a manual electric. It wasn't electric. I know, but that was your, it was like a manual version. Oh, manual version. Yeah. (laughs) It was the caveman, the caveman (laughs) version. (laughs) The Flintstones version. Yeah, (laughs) It, it was. I tried so much stuff. I raided my mum's cupboards. Eventually, it's actually really embarrassing for me revealing all of this. Me too. Me too. Are we going to delete this? I don't know. <laughs> I found the hair removing cream. And I knew that's what it was because my mum would walk around the house removing the hair sometimes. So mm-hmm. I was like, oh, I found it eventually. And it was off. And I was like, oh, felt really good. Yeah. And I thought, now I hope no one picks up on the fact that I've done it or draws attention to me. And I remember sitting around a table with my aunts and um, cousins and my uncles. And one of my aunts just said to me, oh, you've removed your upper lip like this. <sighs> and I was, again, I was like, oh, ground just swallowing me up. Yeah. This isn't is that awful. strange that even after you do the change, you feel like shame or embarrassed. Like yeah. You just don't want anybody to notice. No, just changes. let me live my life. Yeah. Yeah. I had the same thing with my eyebrows because... Everyone had thick, a lot of the girls in my school had like thick 
eyebrows. Oh, because you know? of where you were. Yeah. yeah. So they they could easily you know thread them or shape them into like a nice full brow. But I had like these Asian eyebrows that kind of look like triangles, and I felt a lot of shame around that. Um, you know the shape of them, and that you had to be really careful. You take two hairs out, it changes the whole shape you know trust me I know yeah, yeah. And, but one day I think one of the girls in my dance studio commented on my eyebrows I felt a lot of shame and what did she say I can't remember but it was something like that they're trying like triangles because they're really thick on the sides you know and so That's I rude. was determined to to shape my eyebrows secretly and I mm-hmm. and I did it and I did a decent job but then of course after I did it I was hoping no one would notice <laughs> Yeah, that would so thing. strange. Yeah. But my sisters noticed because they were like, "Oh, you cracked it," because <laughs> they were having the same eyebrow <laughs> situation, you know. So then I ended up shaping their eyebrows too. Wow. Yeah. Is that the first time that you used a pair of tweezers? I think so. What? Oh my gosh, that is a completely different experience to me. You should have seen my eyebrows. They were awful. They were, they were like little. Someone had drawn a pencil line. I shaped them so much that first of all, they were just really awful. And second of all, they were just so thin that when I look back at pictures now... Oh, everybody, everybody's eyebrows were too thin in the 90s. Yeah, but it sounds like at your school, everyone had these nice thick eyebrows. Yeah, but they were still thinner than what the the style is today. So they were still following the fashion. Yeah, today. Oh, I I was just winning at life when it came to those HD eyebrows. (laughs) I was like, yeah, I've got those, that's fine. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Any other insecurities? Oh, yes. I used to pray. Literally, one of my requests to God every night to Jesus were that my boobs would grow. Oh. Yeah. Because, again, the landscape, I'm in the Middle East. I actually read an article once that said, like, the, the world's average cup size, like, bra cup size is B, but in Israel, it was C. Oh. I think I read this in some magazine at one point. Yeah, like a teen uh, magazine. Yeah, or I don't know. And I just thought, oh, God, I'm surrounded by... C-. My best friend actually had double D. Really? Yeah, so I, I, yeah, I was really kind of flat-chested for a long time. And it it was not cool, you know, because all the girls were really voluptuous and curvy and talking about buying bras and and again mm. this is something that i'm sure so many teenagers go through because in every school doesn't matter where you're from what your background is there's always going to be the girl that's more developed and she's yeah. already got her period and she's already this and that and yeah. you're you know and then and then the girl that suddenly boom within like 2 weeks she like her whole body changes and mm-hmm. she's embarrassed and but yeah i was really self-conscious about my 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 boobs oh my gosh <laughs> is was there anything that you did to try and to try and blend in or tame those insecurities well I didn't I definitely didn't put like any padding or anything like that on it wasn't wasn't really an option because again like I had to you're kind of navigating like the social front and your family life right like you don't want your parents to notice that you're doing these things to change Mm -hmm. um and I was embarrassed to like you know, when all the girls were already wearing like actual bras, I was kind of wearing like bralettes or like a sports bra. And I, w- I remember feeling so great when I finally had that like bralette shoulder like a- strap showing oh, yeah. outside of my spaghetti top. <laughs> I was like, look at me, I've joined the club. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, I've got a bra on. Oh my goodness, yeah. cut to now, I'll do anything not to wear a bra. Oh my gosh, it's particularly since the pandemic. Yep. Those days are very lazy. (laughs) Those days are over. Um, what about heartbreaks? Any you can't get (laughs) through the teen years without heartbreak. No, you can't. Okay, I can talk about my first crush that actually meant something because up until then whatever I was I was dating guys in my school but that would qualify as we would just say hello to each other as we passed each other along the <laughs> corridor and I was going to biology and he was going to maths that was the love story yeah that was the love story up until I met this guy I'm not going to name his name I met him 
through going to my cousin's Asian ball at his university. My cousin was kind enough to invite me and um, two of his other younger girl cousins to this big Asian ball, Indian ball. And we went and it was it was so cool. We were like, oh, we're 15, 16 years old and we're like at this university. And, and there was this guy there and we hit it off and we exchanged numbers and then we started talking a lot. He would call me almost every night and I'd be on the phone to him for like one or two hours. And he, he was fully Indian. And it kind of got to the point where it was like, okay, are we going to meet up? As much as you can orchestrate a meetup at the age of 16, 17 mm -hmm, years old. I don't know mm -hmm. quite what we were going to do, but maybe meet up in London or something. And eventually he said to me, I'm going to have to like call cut on this mm. essentially because you don't look good on paper Ugh. and my parents would never accept you. He said, he spelled it out for me and he said, number one, you're not fully Indian, you're only half. And number two, your parents are divorced. Mm. And it's just not going to work. And it, w I felt awful. I cried. I cried mm. loads. Ugh. Not to him, but afterwards, I felt ashamed and just frustrated because there was nothing I could do. And also angry. Do you remember what you said to him? Um, I don't know. I, I wasn't. I'm not a very confrontational person. Certainly not back then. I probably just said, I. Okay. Um, mm. I wouldn't have said, oh, I understand or anything like that, but I probably just would have put the phone down and sworn at him. Yeah. Yeah. Under my breath or Did something. you share this with your mom or your dad or? No, yeah. I, I don't think so. I don't think so. It was, yeah, it, well, it was weird because then later he came back into my life again. He actually visited me at university. We became friends and I kind of fell for him again. <laughs> <laughs> oh god we never learn do we and then he didn't bring that up about me being indian but he just kind of ended it for different reasons and then we all had an i hate men i hate this person in particular party that night and mm. um, my friends all got together and we just like mm. did that mm -hmm. girly thing and that felt really good to be able to speak to my friends about it finally i mean i totally relate you? to that it's like we even though uh, someone has broken our heart we we try to go back to them because we want to like prove to them that they were wrong mm. but then he beat you to it again and he broke your heart again yeah he's and an idiot yeah yeah whatever to him yeah I mean I I didn't have a situation like that unfold but it was I always knew that dating someone from my school a fellow Israeli was like a dead end it was this mutual understanding that I had with my guy friends and the guys that I met. I knew that, yeah, maybe we could be casual, like date for a short time or something. But when it came became serious about bringing me home and meeting the parents and yeah. thinking maybe potentially towards marriage one day, that that, that wasn't feasible. That unless I converted mm. is what I felt. That that was the messaging that I think I was receiving or that's what I thought. Mm. And also on my end, my parents, I knew my parents were hoping for me to, to be with a Christian guy. So you had that on your mind as well. Yeah, I think I often ended things before they even started mm. because I just knew it wasn't gonna work, which was, I remember thinking, oh, dramatically like throwing myself on the bed, like, oh God, <laughs> if I was just living in America or Australia or Japan, like, Things would be easier, you know, because <laughs> we would get American TV. I would, we would watch Saved by the Bell and I would see the Americans yeah. with their lockers. We don't have lockers in Israel. Mm. Lockers looked very glamorous and yeah. they their football team and the cheerleaders. And I, I was like, be in an in a environment that speaks English and things are run a different way. Or if I were in Japan or if I were in Australia, that it would have been easier for me on the dating front. Yes, having um, those fantasies as a teenager. Yeah. I used to do that too. I used to fantasize about living in a predominantly Indian area in the UK and just thinking my life would be so much easier. Mm. I don't know why, but I just remember having mm -hmm. that thought mm -hmm. and just really wishing that that's where I grew up. Yeah. And then on, then I would, I would flip-flop between identifying with this and then identifying with that. You know, it's interesting also, um, 
I was studying like the, you know, the, the Bible, the first five uh, testaments of the Bible in Israel and doing all these like Jewish things. Like you actually have like studies, Bible studies mm-hmm. in a lot of the schools in Israel. And then the one day off that you get is Saturday. And so our only option was if we wanted to go to church, then we had to go on Saturday mm. because Sunday there was school. Till oh, this yeah. day, it's like that. So how many days of school do you do a week? We do six days. Wow. I know. It's exhausting. Cool. So we'd have six days of school. I mean, Friday was a shorter day. And then Saturday, all of my friends would have the day off and they would sleep in and recharge. And mm. no, I had to get up early on every Saturday and go to church. Aww. And I, I was always like telling my mom like, why? Why do we have to go to church? I want to sleep in. I'm tired. You know, so I was really resentful, you know, and it just was just like another thing like that's uncool about me that I have to freaking go to. I mean, some of the kids went to synagogue on Saturday. Yeah. But I think they still got to sleep in. Um, And then, you know, we'd be going to, you know, in Jerusalem, you know, a lot of people don't drive on Saturday. It gets really quiet. But here we are driving to church. So Often we would get, there would be like um, Orthodox Jews on the road, like throwing rocks at us because, you know, oh shaming God. us for driving on a Saturday. And, and actually our church oh. was burnt down. And then, Shit. yeah, it was, there was a lot, there was a lot going on. And, and yeah, so you're experiencing prejudice from that side well, of things. I, I mean, Jerusalem is an intense place. There's all there's just tension going in every direction. Mm. But yeah, it was it was almost too much for my teenage brain to I mean, till this day my adult brain, I get stressed out when I'm in Israel. There's just a lot of political tension there. And there's people from all walks of life and and there's different religious groups and at varying degrees of religiousness and it's it's stressful yeah a lot of times when I was a teenager I would just fantasize like why why am I here my life would be so much easier in another country Mm. um but at the same time I'm I am so grateful for it and the friendships that I've built in those years I I have those friends till this day yeah and they're a major part of my life Mm -hmm. and they know me they love me for who I am they don't care that I'm this or that I'm that. Yeah. And they never, as we said earlier, they never saw me. Yeah, in any other way apart yeah. from just being you. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, they love me for who I am. And uh, I'm glad that I had that multicultural upbringing. Mm-hmm. I think there's, they were saying that statistically most mixed people, ultimately, they feel really grateful and and proud. Because it is, it just makes your life more colorful. Mm-hmm. It's hard in those years when everything's changing and... You know, I also had my major near-death experience happen when I was 16, and that was huge. Mm. I think that's for another episode. But at 16, when you're juggling all these different things and you're trying to figure out who you are, to suddenly be in a situation where you're fighting for your life. I can't um, imagine. Yeah, and, you know, it was also during the time of... um, the second Intifada, so it was pretty much wartime. You know, there were attacks, bombings... A lot of casualties on both sides. And of course, I can only speak from my own experience growing up as a teenager in West Jerusalem, because I'm sure that others, you know, namely Palestinians, would have a very different perspective to share. But I know that my personal experience was that I was scared. You know, I was scared to take the bus to school. And rightfully so, because we actually did have a bus explode. right outside our school at our school bus stop. What? Yeah, as well as um, there was a car bomb that went off right outside the building where we lived. And oh my mul- God. Yeah, multiple bombings at the junction of our neighborhood. When I was about 12, I happened to be downtown Jerusalem with my best friend when a deadly triple bombing happened. You know, it was oh. terrifying. Um, my friends later joke that I often... <laughs> found myself at the wrong place at the wrong time so whenever an attack happened they would always like check in with me first and be like where is Hannah yeah um but you know we're still trying to solve this Israeli-Palestinian conflict I can barely wrap my head around it now let alone when I was a teenager it was uh it's a lot going on oh my god I can't believe you went through all those things Genuinely, you're sitting here talking to me about 
what you went through as a teenager and it's just I mean I just can't I can't fathom it Mm. yeah I mean that was the normal there I couldn't you know it's hard to sometimes process things in the moment but looking back I'm like yeah that was intense (laughs) yes the landscape in which you grew up in and to have that as you know part of it not just once but multiple times it sounds like and you know it's so interesting to hear about your life in Israel and being half Japanese and half Australian and then being in a predominantly Jewish place and maintaining your Christianity and you know what that was Mm. what that was like it's so interesting for me to hear as your friend um same yeah and it is nice to revisit myself I guess as a teenager and to air these things that were so inside me and giving me so much angst all the time and now to talk about it yeah I've kept all my diaries from all over the me years too. And, and in preparation for this episode I went to my first diary I started when I was about 12 and I was like let me read this and see if there's anything in there that would give us like a glimpse there was nothing in there <laughs> But it was, it was all, um, it was all that chit chat. It was the things we mentioned, you know, it was like the insecurities and this person and like my best friend is now like, you know, she's drifting away. We're drifting apart. And then this guy, Mm. you know, he broke my heart. It was just like the, the usual. And there was a little bit of, there was a few like my mom, you know, like really upset at my mom for something. And yeah. Yeah. There weren't any like major revelations, I'll tell you uh, that. Yeah, I see. <laughs> Definitely none of that. Yeah. But I'm so grateful for my diary that yeah. I had that I had him him or her. I love having done that and even now it just relaxes me so much to put pen to paper and just put my thoughts down. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. It was almost like I was my own counselor looking yeah. back. I'd write down what the problem was and then I'd almost tell myself how to deal with it through my writing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Just letting it out already feels better. Yeah. yeah, it's so great. But sometimes I I think, what am I going to do with all these diaries? They're at Chloe's house actually in her garage and I'm like... Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> I and- just took them out of storage in New York. Oh, and yeah. then so where are they? They're now in LA. They're still in the su- little suitcase. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I don't know where I'm, I literally, I am going to Google, because I just haven't had time, but I'm going to Google, what does one do with 30 years worth of diaries? Yeah, can you then tell me okay. what to do? Because it's, honestly, it's, it's crazy. overwhelming, right? I've actually stopped writing so much because I just, it's uncontrollable. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to create more for myself to carry, to carry around or more for my friends to have to store for me. Yeah, that's not cool that your friend <laughs> Chloe is storing your diaries. You're going to the UK this summer. Yeah, so then my I. homework for you is to bring back at least a portion of them. Bring with you. back. Listen, Matthias, my husband, also asked me, he was like, What are you going to do with these? And I was like, I don't know. I'm going to read them and highlight the parts. I had this idea. Okay, I had an idea. Read them. And if there's like a really good page in there, just like rip it out or take a photo of it and then just. And then get rid of the diary. So keep like the 10 best pages of each diary or something like that. I know, but what's so nice is the feeling of the paper and like just having it, have physically having it. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what I think I'm going to do with them. I will say that I opened one of the diaries from like 15 years ago or 10 or 15 years ago. And I was complaining about similar things. <laughs> And I thought, oh, God, help me. Well, I have, like, gotten nowhere in my life. So, yeah. Nothing's changed. Anyway. Um, well, on that note, shall we... Uh... Oh, let's read some quotes. Oh, yes. Okay. Whenever two people meet, there are really six people present. There is each man as he sees himself, each man as the other person sees him, and each man as he really is. William James. If you are always trying to be normal, you will never know how amazing you can be. Maya Angelou. To be yourself in a world that is constantly trying to make you something else is the greatest accomplishment. Ralph Waldo Emerson. And finally, here's a poem by my favourite, Rupi Court. The universe took its time on you, crafted you precisely, 
so you could offer the world something distinct from everyone else. So when you doubt how you were created, you doubt an energy greater than us both. By Rupi Kaur. So uh, sending a huge hug to our teen selves, what would you say to her? I'd say just go out there and just be yourself and who cares if you're not right on paper? That's his problem. You don't want to be with him anyway. Remove your hair, grow your hair. (laughs) (laughs) Do whatever you want to do, just do it. And if, if anyone has a reaction to it, good for them. Yeah, yeah. What would you say? I would say don't stress so much. It's gonna be okay. It's gonna go by so quickly. All those things that you want, they will come to you and better than you could ever imagine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'd also say that the fact that you have these two cultures and you can flip and flop, that's gonna become your superpower, as cliched as that sounds, it really is. So a big thank you to listening and please write into us if you relate to any of this or any stories that you may have. Yeah, do you have any awkward teen year stories? Tell us. Please write into us on the email address listed on the show notes and you can contact us via our socials as well. If you like this episode, please subscribe. Please share this with your friends, your family. We appreciate your love and support and we can't wait to see you back here at the next episode. Oh, and please go and leave us a review and a five-star rating if you love this episode. And of course, if you have any suggestions for any topics that you want us to explore in the future, please do let us know. We do have a list of things that we've made, but we would love to hear from you. See you next week. This episode was produced by us. Music by Matthias Kunzleith.